Uh, well, good morning, friends. Uh, it's great to see you at church this morning. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Huey, and uh, I'm uh, one of the ministers uh, here at this church. And uh, if you are visiting for the first time, it's uh, wonderful to see you. And uh, I hope this is the first of many times that you come and meet with us in this way. Uh, let me also add my welcome uh, to Kelly. Uh, great to have you with us. And uh, uh, as you all probably know, we have a lunch organised uh, after this at 12 o'clock uh, at our Enfield site. And so uh, please um, join us for that lunch and we'll be hearing more from Kelly about her work in Japan and uh, how we can be partnering with her uh, in that work. Um, I also saw this morning uh, the newest member of our congregation. Um, his name's Oliver and he's uh, less than a few weeks old. So uh, he's probably in, in the crash room somewhere. So uh, if you see uh, the Cho family, uh, make sure uh, you, you welcome them. But uh, how about I lead us in prayer, and uh, we'll have a look at uh, Revelation 4 and 5 together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for gathering us this morning around your word. Uh, thank you for the great privilege of being able to open up the Bible and uh, hear what you have to say. And uh, we pray, Father, that as we uh, see these wonderful words uh, that take us uh, into heaven itself, uh, that you would help us to see Jesus clearly this morning, and that seeing him clearly, we would fall down and worship him as first in our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, friends, uh, those of us who are slightly older might be familiar with the phrase, a Kodak moment. Uh, Kodak, of course, was a company that produced cameras and film, uh, but tragically went bankrupt simply because they did not anticipate the future. Uh, they did not see that digital cameras would own the future. And so, of course, when uh, these digital cameras uh, flooded the market, and there was no need for film anymore, the Kodak company quickly went bust. Uh, now this morning I want to ask the question, who owns the future? Uh, who owns your future? Who gets to decide whether you and I even have a future or not? Uh, if you are a student, uh, you might think that it is your university that determines or owns your future. If they give you a degree, then it will set you on uh, the road to a bright future. Uh, perhaps this is what we might even tell our children. Or if you are a worker, you might think that your employer owns the future. If your employer gives the green light to uh, progress up the corporate ladder, then you are well on your way to a bright future. Uh, or you might think it is the secular voices in our world that own the future. Uh, you know, in the recent same-sex marriage plebiscite, one of the things the secularists kept on saying was that if you do not vote in favour of same-sex marriage, then you are on the wrong side of history. In other words, they are the ones who own the future, and so if you want to be on the right side of history, you'd better side with them. Uh, it's an important question because I reckon whoever you think owns your future will be the one 
whom you worship and whom I worship. Is that right? Whether it's our university studies or employers or the secular world, if we believe that they are the ones who own and determine our future, then we will find it impossible to say no to them when they make certain demands of us. And so who owns your future? Well, uh, we've been looking for the past few weeks at the book of Revelation, uh, which, uh, as Tony mentioned, is a letter written to the seven churches uh, in Asia Minor specifically, but uh, really it's it's a letter written to us as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, if you asked these Christians in the, in the first century that, uh, that John is writing to, who owns your future? Well, many of them would have been tempted to answer that it was the emperor, the Roman emperor Caesar. For if you were willing to bow the knee to Caesar, then you would be treated well in the Roman Empire. If you were willing to bow the knee to him and worship him, then you would be accepted in the trade guilds uh, of the Roman Empire. You would have a job. You would be able to prosper. And if you were able to trade with the Roman Empire, then the world was literally at your feet. You would have a gloriously secure future. But I want to suggest, friends, that chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation is a is really a reminder by the Lord Jesus Christ that even though it may seem like Caesar is the one who owns the, sea, uh, the future, well, the reality is very, very different indeed. Now, uh, you can see there in chapter 4, verse 1, that the Apostle John has uh, a vision. Uh, this is the second vision in Revelation. Uh, we've already seen the first vision that spans from chapters 1 to 3, Uh, What John sees here is the second vision that uh, uh, takes us all the way to the end of Revelation. But friends, I I want you to see that what John sees here is an open door and he hears a voice from heaven inviting him up into heaven itself. And so what John is about to describe is what he sees going on in heaven itself, happening right now. Uh, Many years ago, I uh, got to visit Buckingham Palace. Uh, I wonder whether you've been to Buckingham Palace before. But like every other tourist, I could only, you know, see the palace from the the front gate, uh, which was heavily guarded by the Queen's guards. And I sometimes wonder what it would have been like for, you know, the gates to be flung open and perhaps, you know, the Queen herself walking up and inviting me in uh, to... uh, have a look at the palace and to meet her corgis and uh, visit the different rooms. Uh, What we have here is a tantalizing glimpse of heaven itself. But what does John see in heaven? Well, firstly, notice that he sees a throne. Uh, You can see it there in verse 2 that he sees a throne that is higher than any other throne and God himself seated and ruling from that throne. Uh, It's an image that is so glorious and so majestic and so splendid that John has trouble describing what he is seeing. Uh, He says in verse 3 that the one sitting on the throne looked like jasper and carnelian, 
which are uh, these opaque stones can take, that can take on a number of different vibrant colors, from uh, red to yellow to green. Uh, again, in verse 3, he sees that around the throne is a rainbow, which reminds us of God's rainbow to Noah in Genesis chapter 9. It's an image that speaks of God's wonderful mercy towards humanity. Uh, further, if you drop down to verse 5, we see lightning and thunder coming from the throne, reminding us of uh, what happened at Mount Sinai, where God dwelt in unapproachable holiness. However, this doesn't keep God from relating to his people, because uh, you can see there in verse 5 that be uh, before the throne there are seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Uh, we've already seen that the seven spirits of God is a reference to the Holy Spirit, uh, seven being the, the divine number. And so what we are seeing here is that the Holy Spirit is like a torch ready to set the lampstands, which are the churches, uh, alight with life. And finally, in verse 6, we see a sea of glass like crystal. The sea in the Bible often represents chaos and evil, and so here the, the stormy seas have been overcome by God so that there is now just uh, peace and calm and order. Uh, now, friends, I, I just want to remind us at this point that John is uh, writing in uh, an, the apocalyptic style, uh, which is full of symbolism. So uh, it'll be a mistake, I think, to think that, you know, in heaven there is literally this huge throne uh, any more that, than, you know, Jesus will have, you know, uh, will be woolly like a, like a lamb. Um, I think uh, one helpful illustration uh, that I've come across is that what John sees here uh, of heaven is it's not like a video. It's not videoing what, what is happening in heaven, but it, it's a vision uh, full of symbolism. Uh, speaking of spiritual realities. And so, although there may not be a throne, the reality is that heaven is a place where God reigns. But secondly, uh, did you notice that John sees various figures uh, around the throne? Uh, in verse 4, you can see that he sees 24 elders who are clothed in white, which is the color of victory and having some kind of rule in heaven because they are seated on thrones with crowns on their heads. Uh, who are these elders? Well, I think uh, they are 24... Uh, sorry, the, the, the 24 elders are the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel as well as the 12 apostles. Uh, in other words, they represent the complete people of God uh, in the Bible. But further, you can see in verse 6 that uh, there are also four living creatures around the throne who look like an, a lion and an ox and a man and, a, and an eagle. Uh, who are these creatures that seem so bizarre? Uh, well, in the Bible, four is the number of nature. Um, think, you know, uh, the, the four corners of the world, for example. And so these are re representatives of the created world. The lion is the noblest of creatures. The ox is one of the strongest creatures. The man is the wisest of creatures. The eagle is the swiftest 
creature. Uh, however, did you notice that these creatures have eyes? Uh, they are able to see and perceive something of God that not all of creation sees. They see that he is utterly pure and utterly powerful and that he is utterly eternal. Uh, that's why they worship him and praise him ceaselessly in verse 8, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, friends, who among those that we are tempted to worship can claim to be these sort of things? Who among those whom we are tempted to worship can claim these things for themselves? I mean, is your boss as pure and as holy as God? I think you know the answer to that. Is the secularist as powerful as God? No, they will return to the dust. Is the government eternal like God? No, they will simply be replaced in a few years. No, God is holy, and God is powerful, and God is eternal. He is the incomparable one who reigns from heaven. And so it's right not only for all of creation, but especially God's people to fall down and worship this God. Uh, that's why uh, you see the 24 elders in verse 11, uh, casting down their thrones before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, did you notice why it is right to worship this God? To the exclusion of all others? Well, in verse 11, it's because he is the one who created all things. The simple point of the Bible is that if you create something, then you own it. You can determine the future of it. Uh, now, I don't have a creative bone in my body, as most of you know, but uh, the only thing I could think of that I have created in my house is uh, a whole lot of IKEA furniture that uh, somewhere along the line I, I put together. And uh, sometimes I like to just shuffle uh, the, the furniture around the house, and so I you know, move this bit of IKEA furniture from here to there, and I shuffle another one here to there because I think it will work better that way. But you see, because I created it, I own it, and I have the right to place it where I want and to ask of it to do the function for which it was created. And so similarly, what John is showing us here is that because God created all things, that because God created us, well, he owns us, and he is the one who will determine your future and my future. It's interesting that the 24 elders in verse 11 say, you have created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Uh, it seems more logical, don't you think, to say, you know, by your will they were created, and then they existed. But perhaps what the elders are saying is they are highlighting that our very existence and our very future existence is determined by the holy and powerful 
an eternal God who sits on this throne. Uh, Well, friends, so far we have seen a a throne in heaven. But uh, to the naked eye, this reign of God or this kingdom of God in heaven is hard to see, isn't it? I mean, for the churches that John is writing to who were suffering tremendously for their faith, it would have been hard to see that God was on his throne and ruling and owning the future. And so chapter 5 then answers the question of how this reign of God in heaven will come to earth. Now in chapter 5, what the Apostle John is shown is a scroll. Uh, You can see there in uh, chapter 5 verse 1 that God who is sitting on the throne is holding a scroll with writing on the inside and outside and uh, this scroll is sealed up and unable to be opened. Uh, What is this scroll that is unable to be opened? Well, there's been a lot of ink spilled on what this scroll, uh, or literally uh, book, uh, which is the the word in in the original language, uh, there's been a lot of ink spilled on what this might be. Uh, Some say it is the book of life that we see in other parts of Revelation, Others say it may be the history of the world that is hidden from us. Uh, Still others say that it is a book that tells us of the future. But like most of the book of Revelation, uh, I think we get a lot of clarity simply by going back to the Old Testament and seeing what the Old Testament tells us. And in particular, uh, the book of Daniel. For in Daniel chapter 12... And uh, you don't need to look this up right now. But in Daniel chapter 12, uh, you actually see a scroll that is sealed up. Uh, What is this book uh, or scroll that is sealed up in Daniel 12? Well, it's the book that tells us of a future day when God's people will be vindicated. Uh, In fact, all of Daniel speaks of a future day when God's kingdom will come to this world to shatter all the kingdoms of the world. And on that day, it will be a day when God's people are vindicated and God's enemies defeated and crushed. However, at the very end of Daniel, this book is sealed up, indicating that this day of God's kingdom, this day of vindication, would be far away in the future. Now, that's why in Revelation, John weeps when no one is found to open this scroll. He's not weeping simply because he likes to read books or because he likes literature. Uh, You know, my daughters often weep at night when I tell them that it's too late to read a book, and so I take their book and I slam it shut and I seal it up and I say, not tonight. Now, it's because John knows that the church is suffering But the day of vindication for God's people seems so distant and nowhere in sight. However, just as it seems that hope is far away for the people of God, I want you to see that there is a moment of high drama here. For John is told by one of the elders that there is finally someone 
who can open the scroll and its seven seals. There is someone who will finally bring God's kingdom and vindicate God's people and destroy God's enemies. You can see it there in verse 5. Verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion of, of Judah is a reference to Genesis 41, where Jacob blesses uh, his sons, and in particular he says that a powerful ruler, like a lion, will come from uh, the line of one of his, his, his sons, Judah. The root of David is a reference to Isaiah 11, where the prophet Isaiah speaks about God's powerful ruler who will come from the line of the great king David. And so this powerful ruler who has conquered God's enemies like a powerful lion is the only one who can open this scroll, who can bring this day of salvation and judgment. And yet, did you notice that when John turns to see this lion that he has heard about from the elder, well, he doesn't see a lion, but he sees a lamb. You can see it there in verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. You see, I don't think you can get a greater contrast, can't you? Can you? you know, um, lions are, are, are animals that tear you to pieces, whereas lambs are gentle creatures. When your children have trouble sleeping at night, you don't kind of tell them to think about lions, do you? You tell them to think about sheep and lambs. Clearly what John sees here, friends, is the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. Crucified because he is the lamb who looks as though he has been slain. Risen because notice that the lamb is still standing, and he has seven horns and seven eyes. The seven horns are a, a, a symbol of power, like the horns of a, of a bull. The eyes are a symbol of all knowledge. He knows all things. And the seven spirits are the Holy Spirit, is the Holy Spirit who goes into all the world. You see, friends, this is why the scroll could not be opened before Jesus' death and resurrection. It's because God, in his kindness and mercy, had in his plan that before that awesome day comes, when he will vindicate his people and judge his enemies, well, he would send his son to come and shed his blood as a ransom price to purchase people back for God. God's plan was that before that terrible day of judgment comes, that he was going to redeem people from every tribe and language and people and nation, Koreans, Chinese, Filipinos, Indians, Sri Lankans, Japanese, Italians, even Aussies people from all nations would be redeemed and forgiven 
and come to know God. But now that Jesus has taken the scroll and he is holding it in his hand, well, he has unlocked the day, the future day of God's kingdom. This is a day that is no longer far away, but it is a day that is near. It's the day when God's kingdom will come in all its fullness and shatter every other kingdom in this world. It's a day when God's people will be vindicated and his enemies destroyed. You see, Jesus holding the scroll means that he is now the one who holds the future. The one who gets to determine your future and my future. And so, the future does not belong to Caesar. It does not belong to any government or earthly authority. It doesn't belong to your boss. It doesn't belong to your family. It doesn't belong to the secular voices of this world. It belongs to Jesus. He is the only one who owns your future and will determine your future, for he is the Lord of all history. And so if this future belongs to Jesus, then he is the one who is to be worshipped to the exclusion of all others. And he is the one who gets, us, gets to tell us how to live our lives now in the light of that glorious future. That's why in the rest of the passage in Revelation 5, what we see is Jesus receiving worship and praise. Did you notice that? In chapter 4, we started with God, the creator on the throne, receiving worship and praise from all of creation. In chapter 5, we end with Jesus, the redeemer, receiving worship and praise from the four living creatures and the 24 elders and expanding in an ever-widening circle to include the angels and the rest of creation singing the new song of redemption. And so, friends, I want to ask us this morning, uh, is your life and, and my life uh, characterized by the worship of this Jesus? Is your life and the decisions you make shaped by a worship of Jesus that seeks to glorify him and honor him and serve him are you in the habit of saying no to other things that vie for your heart to worship them and do you say yes to jesus in serving him uh, in verse 10 those who are ransomed for god are the ones who are not only the ones who belong to god's kingdom but did you notice there that they are priests who serve God and now act as the go-between between God and man, holding out the word of the gospel so that others may come to know and worship this God. If you do not worship Jesus in this way, friends, then what God says is that you are on the wrong side of the one who not only owns the future of all things, but who owns your future as well. And so before he calls time on your life, 
Why don't you turn to Jesus? Why don't you worship this lamb, the one who loved you enough to shed his blood on the cross, uh, to ransom you for God, to forgive you, and to live a new life of worship and service to him? Uh, it'll be a tragedy to be on the wrong side of the one who owns the future. Uh, I don't know about you, but my family is very prone to motion sickness. Uh, my wife can't get on a boat because she gets such severe motion sickness. My youngest daughter can't go on a bus because she also gets quite severe motion sickness when the bus starts to bump around. Uh, but I've noticed that when you are on a bumpy ride and you start to get motion sickness, uh, the, the advice is to just look out at the horizon at a fixed point. Because if you just look there, then everything else will start to stabilise. And friends, I, I want to suggest that that is a little bit like what chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation is here for. Uh, you know, we've been seeing uh, that many of the churches that John writes to are having a bit of a bumpy time of it. Uh, they are suffering for the name of Jesus they are exposed to false teaching. They are tempted to worship things other than Jesus as they struggle with immorality and idolatry in their lives. But what is chapters 4 and 5 about? Well, it's an, an invitation to fix your eyes about the reality of what is going on in heaven. To fix your eyes to see that in heaven, God is, uh, Jesus is at God's right hand ruling the world. He is the one who owns the future. He is the one who purchased you by his blood. And he is the one who has conquered and risen from the dead. And so will you worship him to the exclusion of all others? There is no one else in heaven or on earth or under the earth, who is worthy of your worship. Let's pray together.